Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. As the 2024 session of the Utah Legislature enters its second week, there are many organizations advocating for their causes. We're going to talk with representatives from several of these groups today. Our guests later in the hour will include Rusty Cannon, president of Utah Taxpayers Association, Bill Tibbetts, associate director of the Crossroads Urban Center, Emily Zeitlin, health policy analyst with Utah Health Policy Project, and Jason Chipman, director of Utah Government Affairs for Libertas Institute of Utah. Uh, we begin, however, with Linda Freitas with Friends of Great Salt Lake. Uh, Linda Freitas, welcome back to the program. Uh, thank you so much. Good morning, Tom. It's nice to be here. Uh, it's great to have you on. Of course, a very important time of the year. Legislature is going to be deciding um, on many issues, and uh, of course, help for the Great Salt Lake be uh, be a part of that. Uh, uh, first of all, tell us what the Friends of Great Salt Lake is and does. Uh, Friends of Great Salt Lake is a nonprofit membership organization founded in 1994. Our mission is to preserve and protect the Great Salt Lake ecosystem um, by uh, raising awareness and appreciation um, with the public and through our programs of education, research, advocacy, and the arts. Um, let's. Uh, I want to get into a little bit more uh, uh, broader uh, a little bit later here, but uh, first of all, uh, uh, anything you're especially hoping to get out of the legislature this session? Um, anything. Um, a lot, actually. Um, you know, during the the subsequent sessions, um, starting in 2019, I mean, there were a number of bills that were um, timely, um, that were significant on behalf of Great Salt Lake and a recognition of the various needs at hand uh, regarding water and the sustainability of the ecosystem. And um, with those measures, um, we've realized that we also need to kind of shore up uh, some of the follow-through on legislation uh, that has been funded, for instance, um, agriculture optimization and incentives uh, for uh, the ag community to implement uh, better um, ways of irrigating and better ways of, um, you know, uh, fostering uh, what they do best. Um, but as far as follow-up and what what are the outcomes that we're seeing from uh, the funding and um, the recognition of this as part of a demonstration of a commitment to conserving water and hopefully bringing that water to Great Salt Lake. Um, during this session, I think there'll be measures to shore up uh, that accountability. Um, we need to know that if water is conserved uh, and the intention is to get it to the lake, then is it getting there? Um, so we need better measurements. We need better accountability. Um, we need better ways of um, basically um, increasing our effectiveness uh, for follow through and the commitment um, that is being made. Uh, of course, population growing. Uh, is it is it possible to to conserve our way to health for the the lake? Well, I think you know there is a growing awareness, even with the growing population, of um, what our individual part in this big picture of Great Salt Lake and its ecosystem is all about. So there are many measures um, that are coming from municipalities and water conservancy districts um, to encourage uh, conservation. Um, on behalf of, you know, individuals in um, their daily conduct of the recognition of water and behavior. 
Um, certainly we know that um, primarily with um, households, 60% of most of the water use goes outside. So there have been uh, legislative uh, outcomes to promote better landscaping uh, efficiencies and um, encouraging people uh, to demonstrate um, that way of, um, you know, regarding the fact that they can still have um, a lovely landscape, but it doesn't have to be water intensive. Um, certainly um, efficiencies in, um, you know, the different uh, ways that we have within our homes uh, to reduce water use. But I think that um, in general, um, there is a growing recognition of our part as stewards for Great Salt Lake and its future. And if we don't follow through with that commitment and we don't demonstrate um, our sincerity um, in the way that we we, we act, um, the lake is going to tell us um, that we've you know, we've, there's been a shortfall, and it's it's not going to be pretty. Um, the, the, a bill, I think it was last session, it all blends together. I think uh, uh, a bill failed, which would have set a, uh, a level, uh, a target, target level. Yes, it did. However, um, with that, and you're probably aware of the Great Salt Lake Strike Team, which is a cohort of university, uh, academia, and um the Division, Department of Natural Resources, uh, Department of Water Resources, and the Department of Food and Agriculture. And um, a year ago, uh, this coming February, they put out their first um, report that recognized, you know, things that were occurring with the system. And um, they, the strike team, recommended um, an elevation range that would um, basically help optimize the ecological viability of the system. And um, with that, um, you're aware of the appointment of the Great Salt Lake Commissioner, Brian Steed, um, who is a part of the strike team. And um, with that, in his strategic plan that was just released a week ago, um, he identified a range of elevations for the lake uh, to strive for accountability of how we translate water conservation uh, into uh, Great Salt Lake elevation. So, um, yes, last um, legislative session, um, it was Senator Nate Bluen's bill, um, you know, wanting to have a uh, Senate concurrent resolution to recognize an elevation for the lake of 4198. Um, but I think with the Great Salt Lake Commissioner's strategic plan and the strike team's uh, recognition of an elevation range that is all based on uh, the 2013 Great Salt Lake Comprehensive Management Plan that came out of the uh, Division of Forestry, Fire, and State Lands in the Department of Natural Resources. And they have jurisdictional responsibility uh, for this public trust resource to manage it uh, in perpetuity. So it came from the heart of the division in DNR that's supposed to be managing um, this system. And with that, um, you know, it, it's finally gotten a foothold. Um, and so I see this as a measure, as a catalyst, as a um, you know, a combination of how we translate our work into accountability and results. 
I want to kind of uh, broaden the scope out. Um, of course, last year, an incredibly wet year. It was, uh, we were very grateful for that. Uh, it gave right. us maybe a little bit of a respite. Um, right. We don't know how this year is going to turn out. Uh, some recent snow is helpful. Um, w- with that and and with what happened last year at the legislature and what might happen this year, are you are you hopeful, uh, guarded, uh, neutral, pessimistic? <laughs> how are you feeling? Well, um, you know, certainly last year was a blessing, and um, it was a timely blessing um, because the lake and its ecological viability was um, on the verge of collapse. And so this helped give us a little breathing room. But it's not an excuse uh, not to be rigorous, not to be committed, not to be effective in the way that, again, we implement um, legislative tools, funding, uh, follow-through, education, incentives that are going to translate into what we believe is necessary to sustain Great Salt Lake. So, um, you know, let it snow, let it rain. Um, But um, there are, um, you know, a variety of ways in which we need to uh, continue uh, to be champions on behalf of um, looking ahead and using that elevation range um, that the Great Salt Lake Commissioner has recommended and the Great Salt Lake Strike Team um, as a way to, you know, um, gauge how we're doing. Uh, so, um, briny fingers crossed, yeah, Tom. Yeah, right, briny yeah. fingers crossed. Um, I want to talk about salinity levels. Of course, that's uh, under preview of the the strike team as well. And I, I don't know if the legislature's looking at that. Uh, of course, right. the, you know, the railway causeway is, is caused different salinity levels. And uh, some scientists are saying that uh, is it the north north arm is, is approaching deadly levels of salinity for wildlife. So, um, yes, the north arm, um, given by dint of the fact that the Union Pacific Railroad has basically severed Great Salt Lake into the north and the south arm, as a consequence, the north arm doesn't receive direct inflows from the three river systems that feed the south arm. Um, they're reliant upon precipitation, but also um, the way water comes through the railroad causeway, um, you know, to the north arm. As a consequence, though, um, because of the way that part of the lake um, is, um, Gunnison Island, which was basically an island for the third largest breeding population of American white pelicans, um, because it was isolated and because it was um, the place for, um, you know, those avian species uh, to come together and raise their young and, um, you know, perpetuate the population. Um, Because of water levels um, being as low as they are in the North Arm, um, that island is no longer an island. So as a consequence, it's vulnerable to predation from uh, land uh, animals. And um, the pelicans, um, the population is no longer viable uh, there. And so it's it's a supreme disappointment. It's a tremendous loss of an avian species value that the Great Salt Lake has always recognized as a part of its personality and um, importance. Um, salinity concentrations in the South Arm are important uh, to manage because, again, we have brine shrimp, we have brine flies, we have a different kind of ecosystem there 
um, that is reliant upon the salinity concentrations that are conducive to helping uh, those various entities sustain. So um, the causeway is being managed um, by the uh, Division of Forestry, Fire State Lands, and also uh, the Division of Water Quality, and um, with um, the information provided by the Great Salt Lake Salinity Advisory Committee and the Great Salt Lake Commissioner. So managing um, the berm, if you will, controls um, what water flows from the south to the north. And depending upon salinity concentrations in the south arm, as it relates to that range of salinity that is going to be conducive for that ecological viability of brine flies and brine shrimp, and that translates into avian species and birds that rely on those, um, you know, there, there will be um, obvious points at which the north arm is not going to receive as much water as they may need in order to continue at a level of productivity with um, their mineral extraction that goes on there um, that they would um, hope would be achieved. So it's, again, it's, um, you know, we're, we're considering the viability of the system um, we all have to work together as stakeholders, as stewards uh, for the future of the system, because given the fact, again, that the economic significance of Great Salt Lake to the GDP of Utah annually is, you know, $1.32 billion annually, but the, the ecological viability and the hemispheric uh, significance of Great Salt Lake uh, to over 10 million migratory birds, 338 different species, is important. And so um, we, have to, we have to do our best and um, be informed by science and research and be effective in the way that we make our decisions on behalf of the system. Uh, how concerned should we be about air quality? Uh, I know that you know, a few years ago, just for, fairly recently, it was that it's, uh, the lake was at its lowest level ever, exposing large parts of the the former lake bed now some more water back in but 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 not to you know not maybe where it should be uh what about the air quality right so the air quality is certainly front and center i think in most of the population's awareness of um potential health impacts from the exposed lake bed. And we know from examples of um, saline systems around the world that have been desiccated or that are drying up, um, and the exposure of those lake beds and the contribution of dust into the atmosphere and that translation into health impacts to the population. We don't want to go there. And so um, I think um, both uh, the political arena, uh, managers, um, everyone is acutely aware of the fact that we need to bring water to the system to address the exposed lake bed uh, potential of um, human health impacts from dust. And um, clearly, um, that elevation range of, um, I think in the uh, Great Salt Lake uh, Commissioner's uh, strategic plan, um, it would be uh, 4195 to 4198. Um, the, the Greek ideal is 4198 to 4205. But um, again, you know, it's endurance, it's commitment, it's water, it's how do we effectively make sure that we translate that into results. Um, so, yeah, dust is a problem. Um, 
I mean, certainly we have valley uh, air quality issues just from transportation that um, exacerbate the conditions that the growing population um, has to endure. So we don't want to add um, heavy metals like arsenic and um, lead uh, to air quality issues that we we can address and um, reduce. We'll talk just briefly about water rights. Uh, there has been, uh, you know, some tweaking of those legislature, um, some fairly large donations of water rights, right? I, I can't remember the couple of big organizations. One was Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, there are another couple, but, uh, uh, you know, proverbial drops in the, in the bucket or in the lake, right? Right. But, you know, to the point of uh, the Church's commitment, in perpetuity, I might add, um, that is a demonstration of here is a model Here's a belief system um, with the church as a champion for committing water to Great Salt Lake um, as, you know, one would hope a catalyst for others to want to step up and make that commitment as well. Um, I know in the Great Salt Lake Commissioner's um, strategic plan um, that I think within this year, um, he is hoping to forge uh, split-season water leases uh, for the lake, um, and and that's really encouraging. And that would come from you know agricultural uh, communities, but part of it is um, you know how do you create the incentives uh, to create the action that's going to translate uh, into results for the lake? And I do believe that um, there is a collective will, if you will, uh, to to see this through. And and so, um, yeah, agriculture holds the lion's share of water, um, but that doesn't dismiss the fact that they are a part of the solution as well. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to leave ag, um, you know, out in left field. We want to regard the fact that agriculture is part of a tradition, uh, a contribution to the economy. Um, They are a part of the conversation and, as I said earlier, a part of the solution. So um, with the church as a model, and Rio Tinto, Kennecott, I believe, is the other Ah, contributor, mm -hmm. Um, you know, I, I think I think there's some good there's some good leadership um, examples um, that others uh, would be more willing to follow. Just have a couple minutes left here. Um, you mentioned collective will. Uh, uh-huh. Of course, you know, public pressure is going to need to continue here. Do you do you think we have the attention span? Do you think we have the collective will to because this is going to take several years, many years, I think, right? Well, it is. And, you know, I mean, the again, the Great Salt Lake Commissioner's strategic plan um, has forecasted, you know, immediate goals, um, you know, interim or uh, what? Uh, yeah, continuing goals and then looking out 30 years. It We've never really recognized Great Salt Lake historically, politically, um, in in a way that um, was meaningful other than uh, it was there. It was a cultural center. It was a historic uh, generator. Um, the values of, you know, spiritual existence um, and that part of, you know, this place um, have been recognized. But as far as management, uh, the lake was always managed as, you know, bottom, at the bottom of uh, 36,000 square mile 
um, watershed basin. And so it was just kind of the last in line. And I think we've come to realize that we can no longer look at the lake um, in that way. And so if we are going to uh, continue to grow, if we are going to um, tout Utah as this is the place um, and invite people to come to, quote unquote, a quality of life like no other, then we have to be sure that we're uh, committed to making it that that way. And the commitment to the lake is um, front and center. Well, we've been talking with Linda Freitas, uh, Executive Director of Friends of Great Salt Lake. Uh, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me, Tom, and um, keep on doing your good work. Thank you. Uh, you, okay. too. you too. Um, uh, we're uh, uh, targeting, uh, not targeting, talking with representatives from uh, advocacy groups uh, as we head into the second uh, week of the uh, Utah Legislature 2024 session. And uh, we'll be talking with uh, representatives from various groups following a break. We'll be uh, talking with Bill Tibbetts from Crossroads Urban Center, Jason Chipman from Libertas Institute, Emily Zeitlin from Utah Health Policy Project, and Rusty Cannon from Utah Taxpayers Association. All that coming up. You're listening to Access Utah. Thanks for listening. We're now talking with Bill Tibbetts. He's Deputy Executive Director at Crossroads Urban Center. What are some of the top uh, priorities for Crossroads Urban Center as we embark on another legislative session? What, uh, what kinds of things are you looking at? Our top priority this session are, are proposals that will uh, reduce homelessness and, you know, and address the housing affordability issues that lead to people becoming homeless. Um, are there any uh, particular bills do you know about at this point uh, on this subject? There are a few, and and the biggest thing will be will be the items in the budget, which the governor has proposed a, a large package of, of proposals to do things ranging from building four new shelters to um, increasing funding for homeless services, while also increasing funding for the production of, of affordable housing, but. Um, there are also bills. There's a bill um, sponsored by Representative Dunnigan that will make it easier to use federal Medicaid funds to pay for homeless services, which will obviously be important. There's a, a bill by Representative Spackman Moss, Carol Spackman Moss, that would uh, create ongoing funding for building and uh, preserving affordable housing. There will be a few other bills. Those are the, those are the two we are for sure interested in, in tracking right now. Uh, I'm wondering about uh, about housing, the, the, this crazy housing situation. Are are you seeing effects of that? Uh, people coming in to, to avail themselves of your services. I think it's just really important for a while to remember that in just the year 2021, the average rent in a lot of places in Utah went up by over 20%. And so I think when you talk about people being on the edge of homelessness, people uh, being on the edge of, of going without food to pay the rent, you know, a 20% increase in, in, in rental by itself is, is going to push a lot of people over the edge. And, and so I think um, the cost of rent has grown at double the rate of inflation for almost 20 years now, and I think, um, you know, I mean, 
but that the jump in just 2021 was was I think a huge part of why we've seen such a large increase in homelessness in, in just the last couple of years. Looking, of course, we're looking ahead here, but looking back at the past couple of years uh, with the legislature and other government initiatives, uh, has that helped? Have we, are we are we trending in the right direction in dealing with homelessness? Yeah, I, I think um, the thing that is hard about about addressing homelessness is that building housing takes time, and so I think some of the initiatives to increase funding for affordable housing are beginning to have an impact, but they haven't had the full impact yet. What is encouraging, and I, th- I think that's what's encouraging about um, the proposals the governor's come forward with in, in his budget, is that um, I think we are getting more people in the housing, getting more people indoors who don't have homes than we have probably at any time in the history of the state. So we're doing more to address homelessness than we ever have. It's just that the need grew so fast in the past couple of years that it's there's still obviously a lot a long way to go. But I, I think if the if the, the legislature were to adopt all of all of the ideas the governor has proposed, I think we would see everyone will be able to see the change in, in just a couple of years. Um, and, and I think that's the problem is is that you know there's not you can't nobody can build housing as fast as it's needed. And, and so um, there are initiatives underway, and there, and there are initiatives that made a huge difference. I think uh, in the last couple of years, uh, Switchpoint has opened the point to, um, which now has 200 units, and, and they've moved a lot of seniors and medically vulnerable people into housing who, who were homeless. It's um, it's just that that's also the population where where the increase in homelessness has been the most stark. Because I, with that twenty percent increase in, in the average rent in twenty twenty one, we crossed the threshold where the average rent was higher than than the average social security payment. And so I think um, it's just really hard. Uh, the number of people who can't afford the rent went up. Uh, I noticed on your website, uh, crossroadsurbancenter.org, this particular page talks about a connection between infant mortality and homelessness, and as it face hunger and homelessness is urging Utah policymakers to investigate the link between homelessness and infant mortality. And it cited here, Utah's infant mortality rate increased by 10% in 2022. Yeah, it did. That, and, you know, it, it's... Um the report about that always, you know, does the thing that researchers do. I mean, that's a significant increase, and it will be. It's hard to tell if it's a one-year increase or if it's if it's a trend based on one year. You can't say it's a trend based on one year. But I do think, I mean, it's 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 a big enough increase to ask the question as, as to whether whether the increase in family homelessness, and particularly unsheltered family homelessness, of a family sleeping in cars because there's not enough room at the shelters, if that has contributed to the infant mortality rate, there's a lot of really clear research showing that um, pregnant women who are homeless have a much higher rate of uh, various complications with pregnancy there's just a much higher rate of, of lots of different complications for women who experience homelessness while they're pregnant than, than for women who do not. 
Uh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk to us. Uh, CrossroadsUrbanCenter.org is where you find them. And uh, we've been uh, talking with Bill Tibbetts, Deputy Executive Director of the Crossroads Urban Center. Bill Tibbetts, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you. Now we're talking with Jason Chipman, who's uh, Director of Utah Government Affairs for the Libertas Institute. I know you're you're tracking some bills. I'm uh, on your website and uh, looking at the, the 2024 bills. Uh, tell me about some of these that you're that you're uh, interested in uh, for the 2024 session. The 2024, uh, some of our biggest policies that we're trying to get enacted. Uh, one of them involves uh, the use of psilocybin in a mental health therapy uh, setting. Uh, as you saw yesterday, the governor came out and talked about the lack of health care workers in the mental health space in Utah. And we also believe that there is a lack of, I guess you could say, trials for uh, alternatives to conventional pharmaceuticals. And we have seen across the country there are many, many studies going on uh, in many different settings regarding the use of psychotherapeutics. And we have developed a program that we think would allow you certain mutons uh, the ability to get some relief outside of what is normally prescribed with pharmaceuticals um, um, so it doesn't have FDA approval you're, you're hoping to move it forward faster I guess is that what you're hoping yeah uh, FDA has it on a fast track along with MDMA and the way it would work it would only apply to veterans and first responders it would be limited to about 250 participants in the first year um, you would have a cultivator. Uh, they would be responsible for growing the mushrooms and getting them tested to make sure that they, they contain what they're supposed to contain. And then it would be administered to a patient in a therapy setting. Um, the only time a patient would ever touch it is within the therapist's office. There are no dispensaries. They can't go home with it. Uh, they're not even allowed to leave until the effects of it have worn off. And so what we're trying to do is prove uh, that what the research is showing across the nation is it can work in, in this setting. What else are you looking at? So some of the other policies we're looking at is uh, one of them is a, a couple of them are regarding zoning. One of them would apply to micro schools. Micro schools are just little for-profit schools. They could be as small as, say, a piano teacher. That's considered a micro school, all the way up to, say, like a mathnasium, which is a specialty school. And what is happening across the state is that different municipalities have different regulations regarding microschools. Some of them don't know how to classify them. They think they're a business, and some others think they're, they're a regular school. And so then the, when they apply the building codes to those, it doesn't really make any sense. And so a lot of the founders of these microschools are getting frustrated uh, with a lack of clear regulations for this. And so what the bill does is it defines what a microschool is, and it defines how they're to be classified as far as occupancy and, and different things like that. It would still allow municipalities to set parking and all of those types of same restrictions they have for every other business in the state, uh, but it would give some more clarity to them on how they're to be treated. The other one regarding zoning is another one of the, the initiatives that the governor has talked about recently, and it regards starter homes. Uh, what our research has found is the biggest impediment to getting starter homes built, just homes in general, is zoning. 
this research has been duplicated by the Utah Foundation, by Envision Utah, by the Kim Gardner Foundation. They all have little different flavors of what they think is causing most of the problem, but really what it all boils down to is just zoning restrictions. And so when we free people up to use their own property the way they would like to, to you know keep their property rights their own, what we see is that they're willing to build out these small homes for our children and grandchildren to be able to start off on, on the right foot uh, financially within the state and not have to leave for different opportunities. I've spoken to many legislators over the past year talking about how their own children have had to either leave the state or are still living at home, even if they're married, because they can't find a place to live that they can afford. So those are two of our other big ones. Last couple are we have a bill that we're working on regarding surveillance and what we would like to do is ensure that Utahns are able to you know transit the state without worrying about big brother watching every move they make and using facial recognition to track them we know that there are some cities that like to watch what is going on around their city which is not necessarily a bad thing, especially you talk about like the traffic cameras for the highway patrol, and you've got all the cameras to show what the highway conditions are, which right now is kind of a big deal with all the snow on the ground. But using that in real time uh, is what we're talking about. That just kind of violates our protections, our privacy protections on our ability uh, to move about the country freely. And then the last one, uh, the big one that we're working on, is allowing gig workers say, your, your Uber drivers, your DoorDash delivery uh, people, to get access to benefits without qualifying them as employees. What it would do is allow these platforms to put some money into a pool that the, then these gig workers could use for car insurance, car repair, you know, uh, health insurance, but it wouldn't make them employees. We're having some issues of getting around some of the edicts coming down from the federal government who wants to make everybody an employee, regardless of what they do. But these people, they don't want to be employees. They want to work when they want to work. Uh, They don't want to be told what to do and when to do it. And uh, what we'd like to do is just encourage people to participate in this economy as much as they can and much as they want to and still get some benefit out of it. I know something from your bio. You were uh, spent eight years as a member of the Missouri House of Representatives. Um, so, you know, now here in Utah in a kind of different role, but still watching the legislature. Uh, any differences in those those two bodies, the legislatures in those two states that you've observed or, or similarities? Uh, I would say probably the biggest difference, and Utahns really have to be uh, quite pleased about this, is how the both parties are able to get things done. In Missouri, Democrats, while they, while the Republicans are in a super minority, or in the supermajority, excuse me, in Missouri and Utah, Democrats can still really be effective in Utah. Uh, in Missouri, that was not the case. And in Utah, the legislature functions as the founders intended, as the primary branch of the government. There's a clear separation between the branches in Utah where that wasn't necessarily the case in Missouri. And you know, I've only had one session here in Utah, but I, I can tell you that uh, Utah should uh, thank their lucky stars that, that it operates the way it does. You might not agree with the results, but the process in Utah, I think, is much better. No, oh, interesting. Thanks for that perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been talking with Jason Chipman, uh, Director of Utah Government Affairs for Libertas Institutes. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it.
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and uh, we are checking in with some advocacy groups, uh, a lot of groups up at the Capitol, um, uh, trying to get their priorities noticed and bills passed, and we're checking in with some of those groups uh, following a break. Uh, a couple more groups to be represented. We'll be talking with Rusty Cannon with Utah Taxpayers Association and Emily Zeitlin with Utah Health Policy Project. More following this break. So as we uh, look at the beginning of the legislative session for 2024, just checking in with various groups, I want to check in with Rusty Cannon, president of Utah Taxpayers Association. What are some of your priorities as you look to this uh, session? Well, uh, our priorities are focused, as usual, on providing uh, some tax relief uh, for folks. So everybody's feeling, you know, quite a pinch with inflation the last couple of years, and and uh, not really necessarily new for us, but again, a little bit more of an emphasis on providing some of that relief. Uh, the legislature looks like has set aside some money to likely pass a further income tax cut. Uh, in addition to that, we're working on some property tax relief measures as well to try to provide some respite there on the property tax front for taxpayers, as many have seen a you know decent rise in their property taxes in recent years. And so those are kind of the two themes. A third theme uh, that we're working on as well is trying to take a look at the state budget. Um, it's grown pretty rapidly the last several years, and we think it's time for, for them to kind of pull the reins back there and, and reduce some of the excess spending and uh, certainly the one-time spending uh, that we've seen in the last few years. Are there any areas where the the Taxpayers Association is suggesting we uh, cut back spending? Well, the the greatest areas of growth uh, have been in in, uh, typically a couple of different areas. Um, Number one, education. Um, That obviously is likely to continue. I mean, I think the legislative leadership as well as most members are supportive of still funding education to the levels that they need to be. Um, However, this is there's a new paradigm, and this is the first, at least in most recent lifetimes, where uh, schools beginning this year uh, are beginning with less students enrolled than the previous year. That's not happened before, at least in any you know uh, recent history for for quite some time, at least a generation. And so the question becomes, you know, what does that mean for funding? So that'll be a debate that's had, um, and then. Some of the other social services areas, uh, Medicaid spending and other areas, those have really been ballooning. Uh, and so maybe a further look there to make sure that everything's in control. But then overall, just essentially other than that, overall growth in state agencies' budgets and in various areas of spending around the state have really grown substantially the last several years. The ongoing budget has gone from about $7 billion a year a few years ago now to eleven. Billion. So it's been quite an increase, and, and we're looking for hopefully a pullback in that number. Are there any pieces of legislation at this point uh, heading into the session that uh, concern you or, or that you're, you're especially supporting? Well, obviously, supporting uh, the efforts on any tax relief going forward. Um, also, uh, it's not during the session, but it will get talked about uh, as we move into the fall as the constitutional amendment that will be on the ballot. Uh, in the fall to uh, do a, a few different things. First, it will remove the state sales tax on food. Uh, it will also remove the earmark on the income tax fund so it can be used across all channels of government um, versus where it's just siloed right now. And then third, that constitutional amendment will also guarantee further 
um, gains in education funding in the Constitution. So it's a win-win for everybody and obviously something that we, we think everybody should support. Although that's in the fall, that's not, not related to the session, but, but it will start to become a topic of conversation. I noticed on your website, uh, there's, a, there's a section, a tab called uh, How Utah Compares. How does Utah compare with other states in terms of taxes paid? Well, that's a great question. Actually, we have a three-legged stool here in Utah, income tax, sales tax, and property tax. Um, and, and so overall, how we compare, I mean, the, the simple answer to your question is we're kind of in the middle. Um, but we are uh, quite uh, good on property tax. We're one of the best or lowest, I should say, burdens on taxpayers for property taxes across the nation. We're about 38th out of 50, meaning 50 is the best. And so we're, we're quite quite good there. We're sort of middle of the pack on sales tax. Our overall sales tax rate, including all the local taxes, is sort of in the middle of the pack uh, of the 50 states. And income tax, we're essentially about the same as well. Um, most states have been aggressively cutting their income tax rate and, and have now surpassed us, meaning they're lower than us. And we do need to play a little bit of catch-up there uh, to keep Utah competitive. We've been talking with Rusty Cannon, president of Utah Taxpayers Association. Thanks so much. This part of the program, we're talking with Emily Zeitlin. She's a policy analyst with uh, Utah Health Policy Project. So as we uh, head into the uh, 2024 session of the Utah Legislature, just want to check in with various groups. We're checking in with the Utah Health Policy Project. What are uh, some of the priorities? What are some of the things you're especially uh, interested in tracking uh, in this session of the legislature? So we have a few main bills. Our top priority right now is a bill by Representative Ward. Um, It's called the Medicaid Expansion Hospital Assessment Fund. And so this bill would remove the sunset date for the hospital assessment, which is about $13 million a year. And it was passed by the part of the Medicaid expansion bill in 2019. It expands these categories of the hospital assessment. So this could be allocating to housing, substance use, treatment, other social and health care needs. And so we're hoping under that bill we'll be able to support um, another bill, which is expanding Medicaid pregnancy coverage from 144% to 185% of the federal poverty line. Um, And that was a bill that was ran last year, and it didn't make it through, but we're hoping that it does um, this year. And so those are two main ones we're uh, looking at or under Representative Ward. Another bill we're looking, we are following a Another Medicaid bill um, by Representative Ivory, this bill is it's making, you know, it's adding some reports to the Medicaid fund. So it would require some agencies and programs when requesting or reauthorizing the use of federal funds to produce um, three additional reports. So the reports are a contingency analysis plan, a state sovereignty evaluation, and then a federal funds contingency plan. And so actually that third report would only apply to agencies whose budget consists of more than 33% of the federal funds. So um, that includes, you know, these healthcare funds. So that's why it would affect, you know, Medicaid, a high-impact fund like Medicaid or CHIP. So that's another one we're looking at. There's another one that hasn't been released right now. It's by Representative Brammer. It's another Medicaid fund. Um, We're just, we're really focusing on Medicaid this year. It would be, I, I believe the bill isn't, created it isn't live yet but it's a single allocation fund 
So if Medicaid funding begins to cost more than the baseline, DHHS would have to go to the Appropriation Committee and ask if they want to increase the baseline. And then if there is no spending increase, the bill would implement a waterfall effect on how to control those Medicaid costs. There is on the private sector side, which is not what I am my expertise, but there is some talk of a copay accumulator bill and possibly medical debt, but those are just to mention other bills we're interested in this session. Um, anything else you'd like to say about this session uh, that, uh, as we head into it? Um, no, I mean, we're excited. We value healthcare. We value healthcare for everyone. And so we just want to make sure that through this session, which I think everyone's goals are across the board, to make it attainable, effective, fiscally responsible for people to access health care, you know, for everyone to have access to adequate health care. So we're really focusing on that this session to make sure, you know, these bills are improving Medicaid or improving health care costs or improving health care accessibility for all Utahns. So that's our focus this year for UHPP. We've been talking with uh, Emily Zeitlin, policy analyst with Utah Health Policy Project. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.